We've been working our way through a series of messages on parables and miracles of Jesus. We've seen several of each, and this morning we come to Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. I would like to review for you what I've sought to teach you every time we've come to a parable. Five things about a parable that I hope you're remembering as we've repeated them for you. Number one, parables always teach from the known to the unknown. That's what parables do. Number two, one-third of all of our Lord's teachings while on earth were in form of parable. Number three, each of Jesus' parables were given either to solve a problem or to answer a question. And we have to search the preceding verses to any account of any parable to see which question is being answered by the parable or which problem is being solved. Number four, um, it is, or five rather, it is impossible to discover the truth of any parable by trying to superimpose our customs, our culture, and our day onto the time when Jesus gave the parable. Instead, we have to look at the culture, the customs, and the time when Jesus gave the particular parable in order to get the timeless truth that's in the parable. And as I said, this morning's parable is the parable of the wheat and the tares, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 13. The verses will be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, I hope you would open them to Matthew 13. Why? Because you may want to write in the margin of your Bible, if you write in your Bible, I do, some ideas that may be brought forward in the sermon that will be in your Bible for you to refer to later as you use your Bible down the road. Of course, there's a half sheet for taking notes, and of course, you can take the notes on the half sheet as well. I want to look at this parable of the wheat and the tares under three headings. I want to look at the setting of the parable. I want to look at the wording of the parable. And then I want to look at the living of the parable, the setting, the wording, and the living. So let's begin with the setting. At the time of this parable being given, at that point in the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, he was facing a fact that the nation was missing. And the fact that Jesus was facing that the nation was missing was that there were counterfeit spiritual teachers in the Jewish nation. The people failed to see that the Pharisees were counterfeit spiritual leaders, and it also shouldn't surprise us, they also failed to see that Jesus was legitimate, that Jesus was the real thing. They lacked spiritual discernment, both to detect counterfeit leaders among them and the legitimate Messiah among them. They were letting counterfeit leaders lead them. And these Pharisees, who were counterfeit spiritual leaders, were fake when it came to sincere righteousness. They talked a better game than they themselves lived. They were fake in their righteousness. And of course, the Lord Jesus, in the opposite end of the spectrum, he wasn't fake. He was the finest. And the fake and the finest don't mix. Just ask any jeweler. The fake and the finest do not mix. Now, back then, the fake took attention away from the finest. The Pharisees took attention away from Jesus, and sometimes they did so with violence. They were not above using violence to get their way. And back then, the fake, the Pharisees, did whatever it took, including murder, to hang on to three things they liked very much and they used to their advantage. They'd use any means to hang on to money, fame, and power. 
You don't have to look very far to find fake spiritual leaders nowadays who are doing the same, to hang on to money, fame, and power. Back then, it was, as it still is today, that in the game of religiousness, people play for keeps. Back then, when people played at religion, the Pharisees, they played for keeps. And today, people who play at religion and and are disguised as spiritual pastors, they play for keeps as well. Now, we need to step back before we get to the parable itself to consider there were three low points in Jewish history at the time that Jesus Christ was on earth. Three low points, three killings that were around the time of the Lord Jesus. Number one, the Jews permitted John the Baptist to be killed. That was a sin against God the Father. Number two, the Jews asked that Jesus Christ be killed. That was a sin against God the Son. And number three, the Jews themselves killed Stephen. And that was a sin against the Holy Spirit. Do you know how I know that? Because when the murder of Stephen was cited in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 51, it says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. The sin was resisting the Holy Spirit when they wanted Stephen murdered. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and you are doing just as your fathers did, end of quote. And so three low points around the time of Jesus being on earth were killings. The Jews permitted John the Baptist to be killed. The Jews asked for Jesus Christ to be killed. And the Jews themselves killed Stephen. Sometimes tares, not wheat, sometimes tares resort to murder. They did at the time of this parable, and they still do today. People who play a religious game as phony fakes will not stop at times with killing people. At the time of this parable, the time in Jesus' public ministry, the parable of the wheat and the tares needed to point something out that was essential and missed by the average Jew in the Jewish nation. Namely, that all that glitters religiously was not gold. All that looked good on the outside wasn't in fact good on the inside. And the parable of the wheat and the tares pointed out to them and then and to us today that religiously speaking, all that glitters is not gold. Back then, it needed to be pointed out, and Jesus did, that spiritual counterfeits had already infiltrated the synagogues. They were right in the synagogues. The problem for the Jews at that time of Jesus wasn't just the Romans, the idol-worshiping pagans, but it was persons that were false, counterfeit, phony, fake, spiritual leaders right inside the synagogue. The problem was bigger inside the synagogue than it was outside of the synagogue. And in many ways, in many quarters in the Christian church, that's still true. But the biggest problem isn't outside a church, it's inside the church. Back then, some who looked to be sincere who had a veneer of sincerity, were actually very insincere and self-serving about their worship, about the Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were insincere about loving God. They loved God for show. 
They prayed publicly, long prayers in public. They sat at the banquet tables at the head. Does any of this sounding familiar in the Bahamas? They were insincere with the veneer of sincerity about the Old Testament Torah and about loving God and about loving persons. Any loving of the persons that Pharisees did was for their own advantage or for their own show. And so we said already in this message that tares sometimes, T-A-R-E-S, tares, not wheat, sometimes resort to murder to hold their places. Tares play the religious game for keeps. And here we're saying that tares knew the Old Testament Torah. They weren't ignorant of what we would call the Bible. They just twisted it to their own advantage. There were tares in the nation of Israel when Jesus told this parable. And something had to be done. Something had to be corrected. Something had to be taught. Something had to be exposed. And so Jesus did all of that with this parable of the wheat and the tares. In fact, this got so close to home to Jesus' original followers that they even found out that there was a tear sprouted and growing at their table Judas Iscariot. So Jesus, the master teacher that he was, used a farming situation to teach that tares and wheat often coexist. Grain and weeds often coexist in the same field. Now, before we come to the actual parable, I want to share some basics with you. Four things. Number one, this parable of the wheat and the tares is not talking about any local church, including this one. The parable of the wheat and the tares is talking about Christendom. All that is done, good or bad, in the name of Christ. This parable is addressing Christendom. All that is done worldwide in the name of Christ, be it good or be it bad. Second, This parable of the wheat and tares is not dealing with the whole big, complete picture of evil. It's not dealing with all the evil there is to deal with. Number three, the parable of the wheat and the tares is teaching one truth. This parable teaches us one truth. And if you have a wallet, man, I want this truth to go in your wallet as you walk out of the building. Ladies, if you have a purse or a handbag, I want this truth to be in your purse and your handbag when you walk out of this sanctuary at the end of this service. Here's the one truth that the parable of the wheat and the tares gives us. Wherever Christ plants a true child of the kingdom, the devil comes and plants a counterfeit person. Wherever Christ plants a true child of the kingdom, The devil comes along and plants a counterfeit person. That's the truth of this parable. Now, before, in this parable of the wheat and the tares, the problem was a real and not an imagined enemy. See it there in verse 25? But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat. In Jesus' parable, there was a real enemy who came and did a strategic thing, and he planted weeds in the field of the field owner's wheat, intentionally. 
And so this parable shows us that there's a problem, there's a real enemy, but more, a real enemy who has a real strategy, but more, a real enemy who was nearby, who was a neighbor. Tares are neighbors to wheat. Often where you find wheat, you find tares. Because Satan plants tares near to wheat. That's what he does. He plants counterfeit Christians near to true Christians. That's what he does. It was Spurgeon who observed that Satan uh, never kicks a dead horse. So a church that experiences no satanic harassment ought to be worried because Satan kicks vibrant, living, purposeful, useful horses. And so when we see pushback from Satan against our ministries, which we do, have you noticed? It shows us that Satan is bothering to plant tares beside us wheat. He's bothering to do that because by God's grace, for God's glory, we are making a difference in Nassau and through our missionaries in the world. Let me say it again. If any church is not being opposed by Satan, then that church is something to be worried about. So all of this is the setting of the parable, the setting of the parable of the wheat and the tares. So it was a problem that Jesus was solving, a problem of counterfeit leaders infiltrating synagogues that needed to be exposed. So we go on from the setting of the parable to the wording of the parable. And to get to the wording of the parable, let's let the Bible speak for itself. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. What we see in this parable is we see a sower of seed. That's in verse 24. And we also see an owner of the field. That's also verse 24. And we also see a Lord of the harvest. That's verses 27 to 30. So in this parable, we have a sower of seed, an owner of a field, and the Lord of a harvest. Jesus Christ is all three of those things. Your Savior is the sower of the seed, the owner of the field, and the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is all three. And because Jesus Christ is the sower, is the owner, and is the Lord, we should be confident, not shaky. We should be slam dunk because Jesus is sower, owner, and Lord. It's in the bag. It's going to turn out fine. 
Therefore, the cynical person and CNN and Satan all don't need to get the final say. Jesus already has the final say. Jesus gets the final say. Not the cynical person, not the news media outlet, not anyone but Jesus, not Satan. Jesus is as sower of the seed and as owner of the field and as Lord of the harvest. He gets the final say. So chill. Relax. Our confidence should grow when we think about the facts that, one, Jesus owns this world. He made it for himself, and he keeps it going by himself. Number two, we should take confidence because Satan is a trespasser in this world. He struts around like he owns the place, but he's a loiterer. Satan is a loiterer in Christ's world. Number three, the state of out of place is not the destiny of this world. This world is not destined to be out of place forever. Things may be out of place now, but things, all things, will be put into their proper places by Jesus when all is said and done. You say, what's out of place now? We're out of place. We're not yet in heaven. Jesus is out of place. He's not yet on David's throne in Jerusalem. Satan is out of place. He's not yet in the lake of fire. But we can be confident right now, whatever you face the rest of today, whatever you face this week, whatever you face this month, whatever you face for the rest of your life, you and I can be confident that God's in control, that Jesus will get the last say that heaven and David's throne and hell will all one day be populated according to God's justice and holiness and plan. No one will be out of place one day. Everyone will be in precisely the right places one day. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in the meanwhile, the interim, the interval, is the perfect organizer. He's organizing it. Even while I'm preaching, he's organizing it. Please look again at verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. We see this picture of a field. Now, in this parable, the field is the world of persons. It's not the philosophical worldview I've taught you about the world being the worldview that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. That's one way of looking at the world as a worldview and a philosophy. That's not how the world is pictured in this parable. In this parable, the field is the world and the world is all the people. For God so loved the world, the people, So in this parable, the field is mentioned, and the field is the world, and the world is all the people. So therefore, back then, the world, the field, was much bigger than the Jews. And so it is today. The world, the field in this parable, is all the persons of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And so when we look again at verse 24... 
we see something else. Not only do we see his field, but we see good seed. And he presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. In this parable, to just state it again, the seed in the field, which is all the people of the world, the seed, they are, it is the people of God. The seed is the church worldwide. The seed is you and me if we're saved. Now, of course, you remember the parable Jesus told of the four soils. And do you remember what the seed was that the sower sowed in the parable of the four soils? The seed was the word of God. But in this parable, the seed is not the word of God. The seed is the people of God. The seed is the children of God, you and me. But when you think about it, there is a direct linkage, a connection between the word of God and the people of God. The word of God is to penetrate the people of God so they live like the son of God to the glory of God. And so the field is the world of people. In this parable, the seed is the group of the children of God worldwide. That's the good seed. So that's what's going on in this parable. And so Christians all over the world, you and me, we are supposed to be good seed. You can know it's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus to be good seed according to the parable language of the wheat and the tares. God wills it, purposes it, designs it, facilitates it that you would be good seed as a child of God. I've told you before I had a lawn maintenance company that I owned while I was in college, and I looked after people's lawns. I cut lawns. I planted lawns. I did all kinds of things with lawns. And sometimes I'd have to go to the garden center and buy grass seed. Grass seed is anywhere between 6 to $10 a pound. Expensive. And I would buy grass seed. I'll tell you one thing I never did at the garden center when I had my own business for lawn care. I never went in and asked to purchase a big bag of lousy seed. Yeah, just give me a big bag of lousy seed. Let's say 70% of the seed that won't sprout and of the 25% of the seed that would sprout, mix it in with some weed seed. I never said that. I wanted good seed. I wanted all good seed. I wanted to put down seed that was good in good soil and see good grass grow quickly, thick and healthy. And like I said, buying good grass seed is expensive. You're good seed. You're expensive. God the Father and God the Son paid more than six to ten bucks a pound for you. It was the precious blood of Christ. You are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. You're expensive. You cost the Godhead a lot. And Jesus wants you to be good seed. He wants you to sprout where you're planted. He wants you to get thick and green, in my analogy, so people can enjoy walking on thick, green, cozy, comfy grass. He wants you where you work to sprout for him and to be, make a difference in your place of business. If you go to school, he wants you to sprout and germinate and become great grass in the lecture theater and in the study hall and in the cafeteria. If you're retired, he wants you to be good seed that grows into grass on your street, where you transact, where you buy groceries hardware items, whatever. We are to be good seed that will grow great wheat in this parable's words. And so Jesus 
said. He presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Wherever you are, you have been planted as good seed to be right where you are. In your marriage, you see, my marriage, it hasn't turned out at all like I thought it would. My marriage? Yes, your marriage. God has planted you to be good seed in your marriage. Where you work, where I work, Pastor, you know how they treat me? Yeah, where you work. Jesus has planted you to be good seed right where you work. Jesus has planted you to be good seed on the street where you live. You don't know my neighbors, Pastor. You don't know the language that comes out of their, their windows. You don't know uh, the way they treat other people. My neighbors? Yeah, Jesus has planted you right beside the neighbors that you have on your street. Where your apartment is, where your house is, you've been planted. I'm so happy to say that most all of your faces here this morning I love and I know you I know you and I have for four plus years as your pastor. I'm so blessed that you're our church family, that you're my church family along with Beth. You're part of this church. You've been planted in this church to be good seed that grows into wheat plants. We welcomed, uh, I think, six new members in the new members class I taught with Pastor Wendley Fowler just before this service. And I told those people, God has led you to take out membership in this assembly because he has worked for you to do in this assembly. We're like the space shuttle, all crew, no passengers. But are we? (laughs) Or do we have passengers? You've been planted as good seed in this church uniquely to find your place of service and ministry. If you need help to do that, speak to me, and I'll try my best to help you. And so good seed in this assembly looks like no idleness, no critical spirit, no gossip, no stinginess with offerings or with one's time, no negativity and no bigoty attitudes. Good seed. If you're married, as I've said, God's planted you to be good seed in your marriage. If you're a student, good seed in your school or college. If you're an employee or employer, good seed where God's planted you in your workplace. Every Christian is to be good seed everywhere that we are planted. You have chronic illness. You're in the hospital. God has planted you in the hospital to be good seed. Judy Penn Robinson is good seed. Her body is failing, but she is good seed in her hospital bed. I was there to see her yesterday. She's good seed. Pray for her. Have you ever seen yourself as seed? Maybe not. Do you know, I was thinking about what is true of seed, all seed. I have seven things. There's probably more things true about seeds that I haven't thought of. But number one, seeds have life in them. To be a seed is to have life in you. Second, seeds have big potential. You can grow mighty big things out of tiny seeds. Number three, seeds grow. By definition, seeds grow. 
Number four, seeds produce fruit, and more fruit has more seeds in it. When I would plant that good grass seed on a customer's lawn and water it, and the sun would shine on it, and it would start to grow, and I wouldn't mow it until it was established in its root system, when I let it grow tall, eventually, if it got tall enough, this new grass, it, brought, it had heads come on it that had grass seed on the heads, because seeds are designed to be able to reproduce. Are you reproducing? Sharing your faith? Inviting people to saving faith in Christ? Do you have a new convert you've led to Christ and you're bringing along the way in the things of the Lord with love like a spiritual mother or father nurtures a spiritual child? That should be the normal Christian life. Seeds, they have life in them. They have big potential. They grow. They produce fruit, and fruit has more seeds in it. They multiply. Seeds also don't stop when they die. In fact, Jesus said, except a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. By the way, the next Christian funeral you go to of a Christian deceased person, remember, seeds continue to serve God and their purpose after they die on earth. And here's maybe the most startling fact about seeds that this parable highlights. To me, one of the most startling, surprising things about seeds is that seeds attract weeds. Weeds like to come alongside a germinated seed and steal the seeds, moisture in the soil and the nutrients in the soil. And weeds want to grow bigger than seeds that grow into wheat. That's what weeds are like. Weeds go after Seeds. Seeds attract weeds unknowingly. Often when you see a seed sprouting, you see a weed. Remember the big idea of this parable is that where God plants true children of the kingdom, Satan plants counterfeit weeds. So there's a sower in the parable. That's a picture of the Lord. And there's a bad sower in the parable. That is a picture of the devil or Satan. And Satan is intentional. Satan is strategic. Satan is persistent. Satan is diabolical. And Satan never stops sowing bad seeds near wheat plants like us. And the two tend to coexist. They tend to grow together, the two plants, the wheat that is planted of good seed and grows into something that's useful to God and purposeful. And the weeds, the tares, they get, somehow they get mixed right in there by the enemy planting them, and the two plants almost grow together. And so the friends of the owner of the field, the Lord of the harvest, said, can we just chop it all down, Lord? Get the, can we just get the tares out of here? He said, don't, don't do that. Wait till the harvest, the time of the harvest. Then cut it down and burn the tares and throw them away and put the wheat in my barn. Wait. There are counterfeit Christians all over the place. Counterfeit Christians, they may dress the part, may speak the part, but don't know the Lord. And they're feathering their own nests. Pastors who are more interested in personal gain than souls to be saved. Pastors who are more interested in titles and positions in society than equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Pastors who don't want to share the credit for anything that good that happens in ministry with God's people because they want the credit for themselves. There are plenty of 
tears in the Church of Jesus Christ in this country and also in all the other countries of the world. To make the point that tears, false, pretending Christians uh, worm their way into the field along with the wheat, it says in Acts 20, verse 29, that Paul, on the way to execution in Jerusalem, saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders that he had worked so closely with in the church at Ephesus for some time. He called them to the beach, and he had a farewell with them. And this is, among other things, what the Apostle Paul said to those Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves, tares, whatever you want to call it. They're going to come in to the good church, the Bible-believing church, and they're going to come and infiltrate like they did the synagogues of the first century, and they're going to look on the outside, okay, but all that religiously glitters is not gold. Now, we know that from Scripture, one way of saying what Satan's position is right now is that he's on a chain. Yeah, he's on a chain. He's on a tether. He can only do what is allowed for him to do. But wouldn't you say that he's on a pretty long chain? It seems like he's on a pretty long chain. And as the enemy sower, Satan is constantly sowing bad seed, tear seed, weed seed in good churches just like ours. And this is why counterfeit, fake, actor, actress Christians are all over the place in Christian churches all over. Just like the problem was the Pharisees infiltrating the synagogues back then, false pastors, false Christians, false Christian leaders come into churches worldwide and infiltrate and wreak havoc. You know, Satan is not an originator. Satan hasn't originated anything. He is a copier. He is a counterfeiter. He pushes substitutes for the real thing. Satan traffics in substitutes and not substance. Some of you and I have used substitute sugars, saccharin way back when, and Splenda, and Equal, and all these things. Substitute sugars. Satan peddles substitute truth, substitute Christian Conversion, substitute Christian experience, substitute Christian churches, substitute Christian pastors. You do know we live in a very ominous and a very sobering and serious time in the history of the church. Christians and their leaders are, in many cases, living on substitutes for the real thing. This is in your outline, so you don't have to scramble to write it all down. But now we have a counterfeit gospel, according to Galatians 1.6. And that counterfeit gospel leads to counterfeit righteousness, Romans 9.30. And counterfeit righteousness leads to counterfeit preachers and teachers, 2 Corinthians 11.13. And counterfeit preachers and teachers lead to counterfeit churches. Revelation 2.9 calls them an assembly of Satan. And counterfeit churches lead to counterfeit Christ. You know, in the Bahamas, if someone says they believe in Christ, the first thing you ought to do is smile at them with genuine interest and say, which Christ? You know there's a lot of Christs around here. There's one described in the Bible, but there's all kinds of other spurious Christs, convenience Christ, tailor-made Christ, self-serving Christ that are espoused to be the Christ that isn't in the Scriptures. The Christ who is homeless 
had no fixed address, had five pieces of clothing before he, when he went to the cross. He is espoused to be a prosperity giver, to make you rich and healthy and wealthy and wise. He's not that Christ. That's just one example. When someone tells you, I believe in Christ, smile and say, yeah, tell me which one. And when you have a counterfeit Christ, you see him as a vending machine. If you just pray properly, if you just pray hard enough and long enough, he's obliged to give you what you pull on the lever of the spiritual vending machine for him to give you. It doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul played three times for his physical affliction to go away and be healed, and it wasn't. Because my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And so when you have a counterfeit Christ, it leads to counterfeit Christian experiences. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. You do know that some people who claim to be Christians, I've heard it. It's not theory. I've heard it. They pray for God to bless their racism. Or they pray for God to bless their gambling. Or they pray to God to bless their premarital sex. Or they pray to God to bless their homosexuality. Or they pray to God to bless their abortion. We live in a field as wheat. that is rampant with tares that Satan has planted right beside the genuine child of the kingdom. He's planted weeds, counterfeit, tear, religious persons. They were in the synagogues back then, and they're in the churches today. And so that is the setting of the parable. And now let's go to the wording of the parable. And in the wording of the parable, as I've read it through, I believe, twice now in the sermon, there are critical terms in this uh, parable. The term of sower and field and owner and good seed and enemy sower and bad seed and wheat and tares. That's all what this parable is about. We have to understand what they mean. I've sought to explain it. Now, in closing this sermon, let's go to the living of the parable, the living of the parable. The first thing is be discerning. Don't take everything hook, line, and sinker. Be discerning. Someone who says they're a Christian, look at their lifestyle. Someone who says they believe the Bible, look what they do with the Bible. Do they take it in context literally, or do they twist it and manipulate it and make it suit them? Be discerning. There are fake Christians. Of course, don't be one. Number two, watch out for jumping the gun. We're all good at jumping the gun. You know that when there's sprints and relay races at the stadium, if someone jumps the gun, they're disqualified, right? We're all good at jumping the gun in the race of life. What do I mean by not jumping the gun in this parable? Don't pull the tares out yet. It's not your job. It's the Lord of the harvest's job to pull up the tares when he says he wants it done. 
don't jump the gun. Because if you jump the gun, you can do too much damage to the wheat field. In pulling up tares, you can pull up the roots of wheat. Wait, don't jump the gun. Do what wheat does until it's harvest. Grow, produce wheat grain. Become who you've been planted by Jesus to be, where you are. Wheat goes right on being wheat, even when surrounded by tares. Don't get your eyes fixed on the tares. Lord, what are you going to do about her? No, I'm going to walk with you, Lord. Do what wheat does. Be wheat. Produce grain. Don't get fixated by the tares. God will deal with the tares. Number three, be concerned for the whole world. You know, I don't believe anybody thinks this way necessarily, but you know that Calvary Bible Church is just a small, very small slice of the spiritual pie in Nassau. There's a lot more going on with the Holy Spirit moving and changing people and winning people to Christ than what happens at 62 Collins Avenue. Do you pray for other churches in the city that are true to the word of God and sharing Christ for the glory of God and making disciples of the Christians in their care? You need to pray for those churches too, not just this church. Be concerned about the whole world, the field. And the field is much, much bigger than 62 Collins Avenue. And God, I've had to learn in my life that God actually blesses believers that I disagree with on some things, on some secondary, non-primary things, not the gospel, but on some outside things, some peripheral things. I can agree to disagree in love with a brother or sister in Christ who believes some of those peripheral things differently than I do. I major on the majors and I minor on the minors. If a, if a church or a Christian has, gives the word of God authority and gives the way to heaven as Jesus Christ alone, believes that Christ died and rose from the dead and is coming again, I can fellowship with those people. And I can pray for those people, and I do. Be concerned about the whole world, the whole field. And number four, take a long view of what's going on. If you take a short view of what's going on and you start noticing the tears all around you and you get all bent out of shape, don't get quickly agitated. Take the long view of what's happening. Don't get agitated. Jesus eventually will deal with the tares. He's going to order workers to sickle them down along with the wheat, and then they'll be separated, and the tares will go to hell, and the wheat will go to heaven. It's going to happen. Take the longest view possible. And not only don't be agitated, don't be discouraged either. Oh, I shared the gospel with him, and he didn't accept Christ. I guess he's a write-off. Don't be discouraged. I think there's a good number of you here this morning who didn't trust Christ as Savior the first time you heard the gospel. Put your hands up if you didn't trust Christ the first time you heard the gospel. Yeah, there's a few hands. Yeah, quite a few. It took more people telling you about Jesus, and then eventually you trusted Jesus to be your Savior. What would happen if the person that was sharing faith to you the first time that was shared to you gave up? Oh, she's, she's not going to trust Christ. No, he's not interested. Don't be discouraged. Take the long view possible. 
there were two salesmen, shoe salesmen, that went to Africa many years ago. And the first salesman wired back to the home base and said, I'm, I'm shipping all the many cartons of shoes you sent to me to sell in Africa because, no, because here nobody wears shoes. The second shoe salesman said, wired, he says, give me all, every case of shoes you have. Nobody here wears shoes. <laughs> Perspective, right? Take the longest view possible. Do you know that currently more persons are being saved each and every hour than were saved at Pentecost event or Peter's preaching all the times he preached in the baby church in Acts? Every hour, more persons are coming to faith in Christ as Savior and Lord today than what happened in those mass conversions on the Pentecost event or all of the preaching that Peter did in the book of Acts when thousands came to saving faith in Christ. Ralph Winter, who's now with the Lord and headed up the U.S. Center for World Mission in Pasadena, California, he estimated 20 or so, 30 or so years ago that in the average day worldwide that approximately 86,000 persons are saved around the world. 86,000 converts a day. Don't grow discouraged. Take the longest view possible. The Holy Spirit is a very busy planter. He's got good seed. He's got you as converts and me as a convert, and he's sowing us wherever he wants us to grow as wheat. He's sowing us. None of you are an accident where you live and minister for Jesus. None of you. Sovereignly, the Holy Spirit has planted you as good seed right where he wants you to be. Be content. Be expectant. Be excited. Be faithful. Be wheat where you've been planted. A real Christian. And last, take your hands off. Take your hands off. It all does not depend on you. And the harvest, verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, may I remind us that the time of the harvest is not at the end of this sermon. The time of the harvest is not at the end of June or July or August. The time of the harvest is not at the end of 2019 where we mark endings. The time of the harvest is up to the owner of the field, up to the one who has redeemed us and planted us. So you can take your hands off. You can trust the owner of the field who's planted you as wheat where he's planted you, you can trust him to bring about the harvest at the time of his choosing. Take your hands off. Very sadly, at the time of the harvest, the tares that have grown amongst the wheat are not going to be given a second chance to become wheat. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior from sin, right now you're a tear. You don't have to leave here a tear. But when the time of the harvest comes, known only to God, and they sickle down the wheat 
and the tares and separate the tares from the wheat, the tares don't get an opportunity to go in the barn. They go to hell and they're burned. And those who have come to Christ in saving faith, the wheat preciously, carefully were gathered up to be with Christ in heaven. I hope no one would leave rejecting Christ as Savior as a tear today. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But when men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprang up and bore grain, Then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the same time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. We pray. Lord, thank you for pointing out in this parable the fact that there are counterfeit and fake Christians who may look okay, may even speak okay, but they're not yet saved. They are tares, weeds. Lord, I pray that no one in the sound of my voice would remain a tear if that is what they are at this point that they would trust Christ, saying they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus died in their place and rose again on the third day and would put their full faith, their full trust in Christ alone to wash them from sin and to make them new from the inside out and to give them a gracious reservation for heaven when they die. Lord, help us to be discerning Christians. Help us not to be fixated on tares, but to be a wheat plant that you're pleased with, growing, reproducing, having grain. For we ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name together, amen.